Heavenly Father, may we remember during the season that the season is a season for celebration, that you've come to redeem those who are fallen, that the baby in the manger was born under the shadow of the cross. May we always celebrate Christmas in light of your redemptive plan, recognizing the humility of leaving the throne room of heaven, coming to earth as a child. May you bless our time in your word this morning. May you illumine our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. I'd invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church at this time. Matthew chapter 1. God is on a mission to restore his fallen people to the likeness of himself. In eternity past, in the fellowship of the Trinity, the plan of redemption was formed, enacted, 2,000 years ago with the coming of Jesus Christ being born of a virgin laid in a manger. The goal of Christ coming to this earth is reflected in one phrase of a Christmas carol that I've had echoing in my mind the last several weeks. The hymn is Hark the Herald Angels Sing and the phrase is God and Sinners Reconciled. That each one of us is born separate from God, born in sin, and Christ came to solve that problem. That through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins, those who are alienated from Christ, those who are far off, can be brought near. That those sinners can have their sins forgiven. Once far off, now brought near by the blood of Christ. And so as we focus during this Advent season on the birth of Christ, let's not get lost in the decorations of a baby in a manger, although that is important. I've heard it said, we don't worship, I don't worship a baby in a manger, I worship a Christ on a cross, and that's not accurate either because Christ isn't on the cross anymore. And we do worship a baby in the manger. We just don't worship just a baby in a manger, okay? And so although it's not wrong to focus during this Advent season on the birth of Christ is very appropriate. Let's not lose the plan of redemption inside of that. And so for the next four weeks, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be celebrating God's plan of redemption through the birth of Christ in this Advent season, and we're going to focus on how God used fallen, sinful people to accomplish that mission. It's God's mission to take His people and to restore Him to His image through Jesus. And He's chosen to use people as, as instruments in that plan. Fallen people, sinful people, unsuspecting people. 
For the next several weeks, we're going to walk through Matthew chapter 1 and 2, and we're going to see the characters that Matthew draws out for us. And we're going to see the role that they played and why it's so encouraging for us. Let's look down. We'll begin reading in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. It is a fascinating genealogy. I preached through that last year. What I'd like to do is to begin in verse 18 this Sunday morning, and we'll read down through verse 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. By the way, if you're a if you're not a Christian, or perhaps you're not familiar with Scripture, and you are maybe wondering if we started in Luke and now we're reading Matthew, maybe you have the question, you know, does God repeat himself uh, with different stories? The answer is yes. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, is the story of Christ, the real account of Christ from four different perspectives. And so this morning for our scripture reading, we read Luke's perspective as he set out and researched carefully the perspective of the birth of Christ, and now we have Matthew's. The birth of Jesus Christ, verse 18, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. He called his name. Jesus. Lord, would you enlighten our minds and our hearts through your spirit as we look deeply into your word this morning. Would you change us to become more like you in your name? Amen. This morning we'll look at two characters, Joseph and Mary. What I'd like to do is to look at each one and using some descriptor words, maybe draw out their character and how God used them in such a unique way. The first one we'll look at is Joseph. Joseph. Joseph is first introduced to us in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 16. As Matthew records the genealogy of Joseph being born in the kingly line of David. He's the husband of Mary, but he's not the biological father of Jesus. He's never called the father of Jesus, although Mary is referred to as the mother of Jesus. We don't really know that much about Joseph. It's interesting that though having such an incredible uh, primary place in Jesus' life growing up as his father, there are no words in all of Scripture attributed to the character of Joseph. 
They're only descriptions of his character and descriptions of his actions. No words. Some of you are like that. You don't really like to to talk. You'd rather be known as a person of few words. Perhaps that was Joseph. We don't know. But we do know that Scripture doesn't record any of his words. There's also no mention of Joseph in any of the gospel accounts regarding the ministry of Jesus. Once, the, uh, once Jesus begins his ministry at his baptism, there's no account of, of Joseph being anywhere present. We can assume, and church history would say, that Joseph died before Jesus began his earthly ministry. We don't know when that would have been. We know he didn't die as a, as a young man because when Joseph was, I mean, sorry, when Jesus was 12, it says that Joseph and Mary had gone to Jerusalem and they left, and they accidentally left him in Jerusalem. Remember that account? And both Joseph and Mary sought for him and, and were perplexed and, and grievous because they couldn't find him. And so we know that at least Joseph was alive at that point, but sometime between age 12 and age 30, Jesus' age, Joseph passed off the scene. We don't know much about him, but we do know enough that would be an encouragement to us this morning as all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so the first word that I'd like you to recognize about Joseph is that he was betrothed. He was betrothed to Mary. Some people would view this betrothal betrothal as an engagement. In fact, some modern-day translations may even insert the word engaged. I think it's a better translation not to do that because betrothal was very different than our engagements today. Engagements today was normally the presentation of a ring to someone to say, it is my intent, unless something happens, that we would be married. And maybe that would be a long engagement, maybe it would be a short engagement, But whatever it is, the engagement today is not a legal transaction. Maybe if it were, people would take engagement and marriage, or the engagement process maybe a little bit more serious. But in the first century, the betrothal period was actually a legal binding contract that the couple would enter into to say that they had purposed marriage, but they were not yet fully wed. And it was at the betrothal period that the bride price would be uh, transferred. And in order to break a betrothal, the couple actually had to go through a legal divorce in order to break that. And it was in this time frame that the couple was considered legally married, even though they had not officially entered their wedding. You see that reflected if you read carefully, which you should. You see that reflected in verses 18 and 19. See if you can see where our text reflects that they're viewed as legally married, even though they had not been officially wed yet. The birth of Jesus Christ, verse 18, took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, talking of the, both the physical union of marriage and the wedding there, the legal aspect of the wedding. She was found to be the child from the Holy Spirit and her husband, Joseph. There's our our key there. That even though they had not been officially wed, she was still considered to be Joseph's wife and Joseph was considered to be her husband, a legal binding contract. They did not live together. 
They were prohibited by law from participating in any sort of sexual relationship until their wedding, but they were still considered legally bound. After the betrothal and before the wedding, the betrothal would kind of send the the groom off on a mission, as it was after the betrothal was official that he would leave the home of his father, and he would go and he would start building his own house. And depending on how wealthy he was, that may take a series of weeks if he had hired labor. For most, it would take a long period of months. For some, even a period of time that they didn't know how long. Can you imagine being engaged? Will you marry me? Yes. You want to set a date? Well, I don't exactly know when it's going to be, but you just need to be ready. Because I'm going to go away. There's no email. There's no texting. I guess they could have used homing pigeons if they wanted, but that probably wasn't the case. And, and they would, he would probably say, hey, it's going to be soon. But you better be ready, because as soon as this house is done, the wedding will be prepared. The bride continued to live with her family until the time when the groom had finished building the house. Then the groom would announce that he was ready. He would walk from his house to the bride's house all along the way gathering those who would be a part of the wedding party. He would pick up his bride at her house. They would have the wedding and they would would go back to the new house that he had built. This was the first century in how weddings operated. You say, Pastor Joe, okay, that's kind of interesting, but why would you go through all of that? When you have that knowledge, I want to read for you John 14. Listen to what Jesus says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you what I have told you, that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's speaking in wedding terms here. The church, all of those who have come to Christ in faith are known as the bride of Christ. Even in parables, telling of of those who would wait for the groom and wait for the groom and, and their lamps would go out and they had no oil. And yet we expectantly wait for Christ to return. How long will it be? I don't know, but he said it will be soon. What is soon? Soon is relative. You all know that. And Christ will return with his gathered army, catching up those who are his church to return with him to claim his bride and conquer sin. You see, the betrothal of Joseph and Mary reminds us that we are bound to Christ even though our final glorification has not been finally revealed. That we are bound to him And one day he will return to claim us for his own. Joseph was a betrothed man. Secondly, he was a pure man. 
Notice in verse 18, Matthew goes out of his way, so does Luke, to express the sexual purity of Joseph and Mary. Matthew records, before they came together, committed to living a pure life before God, committed to be true to his marriage vows and his betrothal vows, committed to holiness in a world of impurity. He was a pure man. He was also a just man. Look at verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, being one who was righteous before God, one who had dedicated his life to following God, that you could say that Joseph was a Christ follower. He was a God follower. That today we would call him a Christian. That Joseph had given his life over to following God. To be obedient to the law of God. That word just means Joseph was a righteous man. And what a statement to be made of any person. He's a righteous man. He believed what God said. He aligned his heart under God. His full trust was in God alone. This shows us that he was righteous before God in his standing. He believed what God said. He aligned his heart under who God was. Fully committed to God. It's a statement that is true of every genuine believer that you are righteous before God. You are righteous in your standing before God. That when God looks at you, he sees someone who is a sinner but who has been reconciled. Someone who is no longer a a son of Satan, but is a son of God. Someone today who has placed their faith and trust in Christ alone to save them. Joseph wasn't counted as righteous any different than you are today. He was counted righteous by his faith that one day Messiah would come. And as God revealed The word of God to him, so Joseph's faith was in the revealed word of God. And you are saved the same way today. That your faith is in the revealed word of God. Joseph's faith that Messiah would come, that God is true to his word. And our faith that Messiah has come, and that God is true to his word. And so he is counted righteous before God. He wasn't saved by his works. It's just Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Joseph believed God. And friend, this morning, if you are to be counted as righteous, if you are to be reconciled to God, if you are to be forgiven of your sins, so you must take your faith, your trust, your belief, your hope, and place it in God alone for that. He was righteous in his status before God, but he was also righteous in his actions before God. He was committed to the law of God. Notice that Matthew records that he was resolved to divorce her quietly because that's what the law required. She was with child during their betrothal period. She had made a legal contract with him to preserve herself for him. And not only that, she had made up some story that she was still pure even though she was pregnant. But Joseph was pure in his actions 
excuse me, he was faithful and righteous in his actions to follow the law of God, but he did it in a caring and humble way. Notice his character on display, verse 19. Being a just man, a righteous man, but unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Being righteous in his actions and being righteous in his character. Unwilling to make a public mockery of her. Her, His goal was not to make an example of her sin or to gloat in any way. But to be caring and loving and to protect her as much as possible. Friends, that's called biblical masculinity. To protect and provide for women in your care. And so Joseph, being a just man, is an example of a godly, charactered, righteous man. He was just. Fourthly, he was obedient. One of the most staggering statements, I believe, in this account of Joseph is found in verse 24. And when Joseph woke from sleep, Look at the next phrase in verse 24. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He was obedient. He had resolved in his heart, thinking that he was making the right decision. And then the revelation from God revealed something different. And what did he do? Did he stick to his own ways? No, I made a decision. I have to do this. No, he didn't. He pivoted and he said, well, if that's what God's word says, then that's what I must do. He was obedient to the word of God. And a righteous person pivots when they see God's revealed word perhaps teaches something different than they thought. That perhaps I've been wrong all these years and unknowingly been wrong and God's word has revealed this to me so what do I do? I'm a just man and I obey the Lord. And friends, this was not easy. It was at the expense of his reputation. It was at the expense of everything for Joseph. Because remember, Mary had gone and had visited her cousin Elizabeth and had remained with her for quite a while. And when she gets back, she looks different. There's just something about her, right? That she's with child and people look at her and it's obvious that Mary has a child and she's betrothed to Joseph. Is this Joseph's child? Did he also break the law of God? Or perhaps has she been defiled by someone else? And then all of a sudden, Joseph takes Mary to be his wife, and the answer to everyone is obvious. Ah, shotgun wedding. I see what happened. Joseph could no longer contain himself. He lacked self-control. He loved himself more than he loved his betrothed wife, and the law of God. And so, I see what happened. He took Mary to be his wife, even though she was carrying a child that was not biologically his. And everyone would assume that he sinned. But he obeyed. And he didn't name the child after him. He named him Jesus. Same thing happened with John, didn't it? Zechariah, why would you name him John? And here, Joseph, rather than naming 
this child after his family obeys and names him Jesus. Both of these decisions to take him to take her as his wife and to name him Jesus were countercultural and required great sacrifice, friends. When was the last time you obeyed Christ against the culture and it required great sacrifice? How many times have we sat in a sermon or read the scripture and said, God, are you sure? Because it's going to cost me a lot. I mean, are you sure that's what you want me to do? Obedient actions that the Lord required, Joseph aligns his heart in obedience. You see, friends, you see a pattern in people that when they're obedient in the small things, they're obedient when the even bigger decisions come. Because this pattern of obedience wasn't just present in Joseph's life here. It was a pattern through his entire life. How do we know that? Luke chapter 2 and verses 13 and 15. Joseph fled to Egypt. Now this child that wasn't even biologically his that he was raising, that everybody thinks that he committed immorality and this child's born out of wedlock, now this child is dictating where he lives. And so he has to uproot his whole family and leave his family's hometown and leave this home that he's built. Why? Because the child is under threat. And so for the cause of Christ, he leaves and sacrifices everything and flees to Egypt. Constantly sensitive to the Holy Spirit in his life at the end of chapter 2. I mean, read that this week from the perspective of Joseph. I want to come back. I can't because this person is threatening my child. And and my whole life now has been turned upside down with this one declaration that I should marry her. And everything that I thought was going to happen has turned out differently. Obedience, 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 obedience. Joseph sets an example for his family by being obedient to the civil authorities even when it required difficulty and sacrifice. Mary is great with child. He has to obey the civil authorities by traveling for the census. What does he do? He humbly aligns in obedience. Fathers, listen carefully. You want to teach your child to disobey you? Show a pattern of disobedience to authorities in your life. Don't tell them they can disobey and everything's okay. Just show them. And here Joseph sets a pattern at the very beginning. Mary, I know it's going to be hard, but we have to do this. Luke chapter 2, 24 through 20, 22 through 24, he's obedient to the law of God in every respect. Luke chapter 2, verses 39, verse 41, Joseph was a dedicated, obedient follower of God. He doesn't have to tell you he's obedient. He shows you that his character is on display. What do we learn from Joseph? Joseph was a normal, everyday guy. He wasn't highly educated. He didn't have abundant resources. He didn't have status or importance. But he obeyed God. I have a feeling if you were to meet Joseph today, I, you know, this, this isn't inspired, so you can throw this out if you want, that's fine. But in my opinion, if Joseph was alive today, he'd be a, blue-collar, day-to-day wage worker, probably have a southern accent. (laughs) 
just a good old boy. He's just a good old boy who, who obeys God. There's nothing important about him except for his holiness and his righteousness. Living in obedience to God makes you useful to the kingdom of God. Friend, listen to me. God doesn't need your money. I mean, how many of us have thought, if I played the lottery and I won the lottery, I would give so much to the church? No, you, no, you wouldn't. Right? God doesn't need that. He needs your heart. He needs your obedience. He needs your holiness, your purity. Joseph, let's talk about Mary. Mary was also betrothed and pure. Everything that could be said about Joseph in those two statements could also be said for Mary. Betrothed, legally binding, she was pure. Self-controlled, true, true, true to her vows. She was also a virgin. Scripture is clear on this topic. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, before they came together. Luke chapter 1, 26 and 27, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man. And the virgin's name was Mary. Luke 1, 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Matthew 1, 22 through 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. But Pastor Joe, if you look in Isaiah, that word in Isaiah seven fourteen can either be translated virgin or young woman, so it's not really that important that we believe she's a virgin. Wrong! Okay? Over and over and over again in the New Testament, a word that can only be translated virgin, it's clear, Mary was not just sexually pure in her relationship with Joseph. She was a virgin. And then when she was, when she was given the Christ child in her womb, it wasn't some random event. Like all of a sudden a baby popped into her womb by accident. It was not accomplished by the strength of Mary... She did not somehow will this to happen. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, conceived in Mary's womb the Christ child. It's not a biological accident. It's not a result of some weird chemical reaction. I read an article this week that someone many years ago, I think it was in the 50s, identified when DNA had just, DNA testing had just become popular. If it's not the 50s, don't correct me. Okay, it's sometime back then. Um, it was a long time ago, as my children would say, back in the olden days, for some of you. Um, but, but right when DNA testing became popular, there was a, 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 a 12-year-old, 13-year-old girl in, in, in England or Europe who, who claimed, her mother claimed that, that she was born of a virgin. And sure enough, they did all these DNA tests and said, wow, this actually can happen. Isn't it great that we can believe the Bible? How backwards is that? This wasn't some, and I don't, I don't think that's true, first of all. But 
But it wasn't just some sort of chemical accident or reaction that happened in Mary's womb. This was the God as the giver of life, as the giver of all life, overshadowing and protecting Mary and planting in her through conception the Christ child. How did that happen? I have no idea. But God did it. How important is this doctrine to our faith? There will be some evangelicals today who would claim and have asserted that it's not necessary to believe in the virgin birth of Messiah in order to be a Christian. Is this the case? Or you can ask the question this way, Pastor Joe, it sounds kind of far-fetched. Must I believe in the virgin birth in order to be a Christian? Every year around this time, news outlets reference the virgin birth as one of the outlandish doctrines of the Christian faith. For instance, several years ago, The Guardian published a, an article entitled, The Story of the Virgin Birth Runs Against the Grain of Christianity. And this wacky liberal theologian tried to prove that Jesus was supposed to be just like every man, and so if that's the case, why would he be born in any different way? Newsweek, I think it was 2004, wrote an article, The Virgin Birth, where they were debunking, trying to debunk this doctrine. So if you see an article like that published in whatever news outlet, or you see something posted on social media or you listening to the news and somebody references this and you have the question, must I believe in this in order to become a Christian or how important is the doctrine of the virgin birth to Christianity? You need to come to this conclusion. It is possible to be saved and not know or understand the virgin birth, but it's not possible to be a Christian and reject the virgin birth. I'm sure there are those in our church family who were saved at a young age. I was saved at the glorious age of four. I remember like it was yesterday, under the conviction of sin, coming to the knowledge of my need for Christ. I had no clue about this doctrine. Does that make me not a Christian? No. But friend, you, can't, you cannot be a Christian and reject the doctrine of the virgin birth. Why? Because in order to be saved, you must identify Jesus correctly and accept him as your Lord. It's not enough to accept Jesus as your Lord. You have to accept the right Jesus as your Lord. There are all types of Jesuses out there. Every religion has their own version of Jesus. That's why if you go to A Mormon, and you say, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? They'll say, yes, but friend, don't be deceived because what they mean by Jesus is not what you mean by Jesus. And so you cannot reject the virgin birth and be a born-again Christian. Why? Because number one, if you do not believe the virgin birth, if you reject the virgin birth, you are rejecting God's clear revelation as God's word. Joel Beakey would say it this way. The virgin birth calls us to submit our minds and our hearts to God's word, regardless of how difficult it may be to accept. If God cannot be trusted with this, then how can we trust him to save us from hell and raise us from the dead to reign with Christ forever? 
Secondly, because in order for Jesus to be the promised Messiah, he must fulfill the Old Testament prophecies of that Messiah. Al Mohler writes, those who deny the virgin birth affirm other doctrines only by force of whim, for they have already surrendered the authority of Scripture. They have undermined Christ's nature and nullified the Incarnation. The virgin birth does not stand alone as a biblical doctrine. It is an irreducible part of the biblical revelation about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen to this statement. Without it, the gospel stands or falls. With it, the gospel stands. Without it, the gospel falls. Because if Christ is not born of a virgin, then Christ is not the Old Testament Christ who was prophesied, and therefore he cannot be your substitute, and therefore you have no salvation. And so it is imperative that Jesus was born of a virgin. Why? Because the Bible says so. That's why. Could there have been other ways for Jesus to enter this world to bring salvation? If God had declared it to be so, yes. But God chose the incarnation to happen in this specific way and prophesied that it would happen in this specific way, so it must happen in this way. In God's infinite wisdom, he ordained that Messiah would be born of a virgin. If Jesus would have just appeared on this earth or been ushered directly from heaven for all to see, it would not be evident that Jesus was truly man. And if Jesus had been born both of a human father and a human mother, it would not be evident that he was truly God. And so in God's infinite wisdom, Jesus being born of a virgin reveals to us that he is both truly God and truly man, thus the appeasing sacrifice for your sins and the only appeasing sacrifice for your sins. She was a virgin. She was also young. She was young. Mary was most likely between 13 and 16 years old at this time. We don't know for sure, but culturally, she was between 13 and 16 years old. Joseph, probably more likely much older. Teenagers, listen to me. Your spiritual growth and your impact for the kingdom of God is not limited by your age. How many people are saved in their teenage years or younger? How many missionaries are on the field today because they gave their life to Christ at a young age? How many dedicated Christian businessmen and women, how many dedicated followers of Jesus in any respect had their heart gripped by truth in elementary school and junior high school or high school. I used to work at a, at a youth camp, and, and when we, Becky and I started right after we got married, we worked with the juniors, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. And um, 
fourth, fifth, and sixth graders are awesome because they're just old enough to, like, interact well, but they're not so old to where they don't think that, like, you hung the moon. Like, they're, they have very easy heroes, right? And so it was just a great time as we, as we had the opportunity to minister in that age group. And I had someone tell me when I told them what I was, what I was doing, how I was ministering at that time, they said, don't underestimate what God can do in a fourth grader's heart. Don't underestimate what God does in those years. Before, hopefully, before the, the world has its grip in a heart that's sensitive to God. Teenagers, you don't have to wait till you're older to make an impact for Christ. She was devout. She was young, but she was devout. Even at her young age, God's grace was upon her. She was a recipient of God's grace in her life. When, when Gabriel appears to her, he says, favored one, that God has placed his favor on you. She was devout in her humility. She aligned under the will of God, even though it would cost her everything. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 38, when the angel tells Mary, listen, everything's about to change for you. And she takes a while to process this through, and yet her response is one of humility when she says, I am the servant of the Lord. If that's what God requires, that's what God requires. If this is God's plan for me, then let it be according to your word. Twice she calls herself God's bond slave, his servant, verse 38 and 48 of of Luke 1. It's a position of utter humility. She was devout in her faith. I want you to, if you have your Bible, turn back to Luke chapter 1 because I want to show you a fascinating, uh, or turn back, turn forward to Luke chapter 1. A fascinating statement made about Mary You can tell a lot about someone by what other people say about them, right? And, and I want you to see, Mary. remember Mary goes, she visits Elizabeth. And we won't get off on the rabbit trail here, but um, John the Baptist prophesies about Messiah before he's even born. Because he leaps in the womb. Right? It's a baby in the womb from the moment of conception. And Mary walks in pregnant with Jesus and Elizabeth's there very pregnant with John. And John the Baptist starts obeying Christ and fulfilling his role before he's even born. He prophesies to his mother, this is Messiah. How does an unborn baby leap for joy? I don't know. But some of you ladies are like, my baby was leaping for joy a lot. And I wish he would have stopped, right? Because it just hurt. But, But he leaps for joy. And what does Elizabeth say about Mary? Look at verses 44 and 45. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Look at verse 45. And blessed is she who believed. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She believed. 
she was a, a woman of great faith. This angel says, listen, you're never going to guess what I'm going to tell you. Your life's going to be different. And she said, okay, I believe. She didn't know all that would happen to her. She didn't know all that would be true of Jesus. She knew some, but she didn't know all. But when the truth was revealed, friends, listen carefully, she continued to believe. And that's the pattern of the genuine Christian. That when truth is revealed, they continue to believe. Yes, and that, and that, and that, and that. And the pattern of the false believer, the believer of the false profession, is they get to a point and they go, oh, well, I didn't know about that. And if that's a part of Jesus, then I'm out. Because they accepted the wrong Jesus. Mary believed, and she continued to believe, and she continued to believe. What happened when the shepherds came in Luke 2, 18, all that heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but what did Mary do? She treasured these things in her heart. She believed. Luke 2, 51, they went down with them, came to Nazareth. Joseph, uh, the, the child Jesus was submissive to them, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. She believed and believed and kept believing because that's what believers do. She was devout in her doctrine. We don't have time. I preached through it several years ago. You, you can find it on our website if you're interested. It's probably not that good of a sermon, but in Mary's, Mary's song, I mean, I don't think any sermon can do the Magnifica justice. In Luke chapter 1, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Listen to this teenage girl in her doctrine. You ready? He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And praise the Lord that Mary reminds us that the word theologian doesn't just apply to guys. There's nothing male about the word theologian, friends. Mary had a deep theology. She had a deep knowledge of God. She knew her God and she loved her God. Becky has a coffee mug that says theologian on it. I'm not allowed to use it in our house. It just reminds us that this word is not reserved for men. Ladies, in your Bible study efforts, go deep. Stay long. Some of you, perhaps in your stage of life, have more time than others. Take advantage of that time to dive deep into God's word. Our church needs deep, accurate, theological women dedicated to knowing God and his word and telling others all about him. That's what we need. She was devout in her doctrine. I think it would be really beneficial for us to, to, to pause for just a few brief moments and talk about some misconceptions and some doctrinal error about Mary. Living where we live today, I think it's very appropriate for us to take a moment and to discuss this. I'd like to recommend a book for you uh, by R.C. Sproul. If you have uh, 
perhaps family members or you're witnessing to someone who's a Catholic, you need this resource. We actually ordered them. Uh, I think Ben mentioned was the dubious shipping or whatever word that you use in your announcements. I don't know what that word means, but he does. Uh, but, but the shipping uh, conundry, you know, that we're under, that word didn't sound right either. But um, the problems that we have in our shipping today, we were supposed to be here and then they're supposed to be here by Friday and then we got delayed, delayed, delayed. They'll be here on Monday. So we'll have in the resource center next week. I said all that to say that, but um, are we together by R.C. Sproul? A Protestant analyzes Roman Catholicism. You need this resource. We're going to have it available for you next Sunday. It'll be in the resource center this week for $15. Go on Amazon, buy it. It's more expensive on Amazon than we have it. Uh, buy it for your spouse, for your family for Christmas. Um, pick it up next week. It, it's excellent. I want to draw out from Scripture. He, he has so many in here. I want to draw out just three, specifically in, in regards to Mary, some misconceptions and doctrinal error about Mary. The first one is something called the Immaculate Conception. Some people would say, um, the Catholics believe in the Immaculate Conception. We do too because Jesus was born of a virgin. But the problem is, Immaculate Conception is not what that refers to. The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, according to Roman Catholicism, is that Mary was conceived without original sin. Mary was sinless. That Mary never sinned, and that she was, she was born a perfect human being, uh, endowed, embodying the grace and fullness and favor of God. Some would even say, it's not official with the Catholic Church, but some would even say, um, deity herself worthy of worship. It's not an official tenet of the Catholic Church, but I'd argue that Mary worship is common in the Catholic Church. But Scripture teaches otherwise. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus is the only one born without a sin nature because he's perfect, truly God, truly man. And in Luke chapter 1, Mary calls God her rescuer, her savior. And the Roman Catholic Church will try to excuse that away and will say, well, the word Savior doesn't just refer to spiritual salvation. It can refer to other things. But, but friends, let me tell you something. That baby Jesus did nothing good for Mary on this earth. Nothing. Being impregnated while betrothed set Mary on the course of the rest of her life for only negative things to happen to her on this earth. Not only that, the, the word Savior is used in the context of God redeeming his people from their sins. Mary was a sinner and she knew it. You need to know it too. The Immaculate Conception doctrine is a false doctrine. It is nowhere found in Scripture. It's actually not even embraced by the Catholic Church. Thomas Aquinas taught otherwise was embraced by the Catholic Church and canonized, I believe, until the mid-1800s, the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Secondly, the prayer of the Catholic Church called the Hail Mary begins with Hail Mary, Hail Mary full of grace. It actually quotes Luke chapter 1 and verse 28. Now, we're not even going to talk about whether or not praying to Mary is right. That's wrong, okay? We're going to talk about what, what they mean in that statement called the Hail Mary it's actually quoting Luke chapter 1, verse 28, but what the Catholics mean 
by full of grace is different than what you and I mean by full of grace. It's different than what Scripture teaches about Mary being full of grace. The Catholics would believe, the Roman Catholics would believe that this verse is teaching that the angel was recognizing that Mary was sinless and that she possessed inside of her the very fullness and grace of God emanating from her. And so when he sees her, he says, Hail Mary in worship, you are full of of deity. You're full of who God is. That you have no sin in you. But what this verse is actually teaching, if you read what Scripture says, which is very important, is reflected in your modern translations where it says, Hail Mary, favored by God. Hello, it's just a greeting. It's a common greeting. And then what the angel is saying is that you are a recipient of the divine favor of God. That God has cast his eyes on you. That you are a recipient of the grace of God. You are a recipient of the divine favor. You are not the source of grace. You are not the source of favor. Does that make sense? It's very different. That Mary was a sinner just like you and I and needed to have God's grace bestowed on her. She did not somehow emanate or, be, or, or, or was the source of 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 the grace of God, the favor of God in any way. If that were true, then you would appeal to Mary for God's favor because she's emanating the favor of God. She's the source of the grace of God, so therefore we would need to pray to Mary for the grace of God. And that's what the Roman Catholics believe, once again, never taught in Scripture. Are they quoting Scripture? Yes. But do they mean the same thing that you and I mean? No, it's very different, and you need to know that. Thirdly, the doctrine of Mary as intercessor, or some would even say co-redemptrix, which would mean that Mary somehow plays a role in the redemption that Christ offers. I believe it was Pope Pius XII, I think it was him, who even said that Mary was the one who offered, yeah, Pope Pius XII, he offered, that Mary offered Christ to the Father on the cross of Calvary. It's heresy, friends. It's false doctrines. Never taught in Scripture. There's a painting in the Vatican located in the Raphael room where Mary is depicted as ruling from heaven, interceding for the church, standing like this, and on either side of her are God the Son and God the Father. And that the church must go through Mary as your intercessor in order to approach God. Once again, friends, it's not hard. You just have to read your Bible to see that in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul records there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Is Mary important to Scripture? She, friends, is so important. As the mother of Jesus, and even referenced as the mother of God, in the sense that she is the one that gave birth to the one who is God. 
Friends, Mary was a sinner just like you and me. God was her savior, her rescuer. And we need to find our doctrine from Scripture in this way and to not be confused. As we close, I'd like to ask this question. What do we learn from Joseph and Mary? Number one, we learn that God uses normal, everyday people to accomplish his mission. Just like you and me. Mary didn't have a halo. You don't have a halo. Joseph was just a normal guy. You and I were just normal people. There's nothing special about them, but God chose to use them in his plan of redemption. What set both Mary and Joseph apart was their dedication to holiness and obedience. And you need to know that. That's not why God chose them. We'll talk about that in a minute. But that's what they show us. Number two, usefulness to God has nothing to do with wealth, age, or status. Your usefulness to God is only limited by your commitment to holiness and obedience, friends. Your usefulness to God has nothing to do with your wealth, age, or status. Thirdly, favor with God cannot be earned. Mary was not favored by God because she was a good person. Mary was not favored by God because she was the most godly girl on the earth at the time. Later on, you have Anna in the temple who prophesies, right? And she was, she's been a widow, and she's now 84. And, and if, if an unmarried woman were to give birth to Messiah, how much better would it be for someone who's dedicated their life to God in the temple at 84 years old, giving birth to Messiah in the temple? But God chose a virgin, a teenager, for no reason other than the fact that it gave him glory to do so. When, when the angel says, hello, Mary, God has placed his favor on you, he's not saying, wow, Mary, good job. You are such a good Christian. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you Messiah. That's not what the angel is saying. What the angel is saying is, hello, Mary, God, in his ultimate plan, in his providential sovereignty, has chosen you because he is so good. There's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. As a Christian, when you obey, you're reflecting Christ reflecting the character of God and strengthening your relationship with Him. Your disobedience and running from God grieves the Holy Spirit, friend. But your obedience, God is not an emoji God who's smiling one day and crying another at you. You can't earn His favor. God chose in His sovereignty Mary and Joseph. Fourthly, the main takeaway, if you want to take away from Mary and Joseph, it's this. Our responsibility is to accept and align under his plan for our lives. That's what Mary and Joseph show us. But, but, Pastor, I don't like what God's chosen for my life. 
I'm sure there were times when Mary and Joseph thought the same. I'll be honest with you. I'm sure there was a time when Joseph thought, God, are you sure? I mean, you don't think Mary had second thoughts and emotional breakdowns? Have you ever been pregnant? I haven't, but I've seen it. (laughs) You don't think there were times when Mary struggled? You don't think there were times when Jesus was a baby and he's growing up and all of a sudden God says, go to Egypt. And Joseph and Mary are like, are you sure? Because that's a long way and it's away from all my family. We don't know anybody and it's dangerous. But friends, your responsibility is simply to accept and align under God's plan for your life. Obedience and holiness. If we had time to go into it, I would encourage you to meditate on this maybe this week, that often those who are used most by God suffer the most. Not always, but very often. Those who are used most by God suffer the most. And God called Mary and Joseph to suffer greatly. In his sovereignty and in his wonderful wisdom. And they lived in holiness and obedience. And may God give us the grace to do the same. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the way in which you have revealed scripture and shown us your plan worked out through fallen people. May we recognize your control. May we align under your plan with grace. Thankful that your sovereignty and your love and control is enough to keep us in those moments of doubt. Would you use us to further your kingdom? Friend, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I'd like to ask you to spend just a moment of silent response and reflection before entering back into the busyness of the day. Would you just reflect and respond on the truth that you've heard this morning? Accept align under God's plan for your life with holiness and obedience. You do business with God as he moves in your heart.